I mean, I think it's really different for different organizations. I mean, when you start to have stuff that works, you know, you want that, you want the things that work to be systematized as much as possible so that you can kind of rely on them and that they can stay there. But then you have the question of like, okay, well, we've got that. What do we want? You know, what else do we want? Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our show with Jesse Schell. If you missed part one, please go back and hear about his career coming up through Bell and IBM and Disney and eventually making his way to Carnegie Mellon and, uh, and his game design company, Shell Games. Jesse, I, I want to talk more about transformational games, but before that, I, I want to talk about entrepreneurship and I want to talk about what some of the lessons are you feel like that got you to the level you're at and then what you feel like you're looking you're looking at next to kind of get to the next level. So can you sure. give everybody a quick snapshot? How long Shell Games have been around? You, you already talked about 130 employees. Any, any other stats to give people just a, a sense for how big the company is now? Yeah, sure. So uh, Shell Games started about 18 years ago. It was just me and a few other people, and we grew it bit by bit over the years. The, the key thing to understand is our, our business model is a little unusual for a game studio. We, our, our model has always been anchored in doing work for hire business and trying to make that profitable and then using the profits in order to make our own games. And as a result, we've never taken investments. We don't have a board of directors. It's really just us deciding what to do, which is nice because we have a lot of freedom for, for what to do and how we do it. The, um, the flip side, though, it's a slower path because it's meant that instead of like, hey, here's $5 million, run, go and be a giant success, we, you know, we had to earn uh, all the money that we invest. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a little bit of a slower path, but it's been a really good path for us because it's, it's definitely made us focus and invest carefully. Yeah. Can you talk about the benefits of, of careful investment instead of maybe over-optimism that sometimes other folks fall into? Yeah, I guess. So a big philosophy for us at the studio is the idea that teams get stronger over time because I've never known, I mean, there's a lot of places where teamwork matters, but in in game development, it's a kind of teamwork like I've never seen anywhere because you need, you when you're when you're making games you literally need you know super high-tech engineers meeting with artists meeting with writers and comedians and musicians and somehow all of us are all going to be on the same page and we're all going to make this thing and it is going to be it's just going to be emotional and brilliant and funny and moving and engaging and so everybody has to be on the same page, but everybody has a completely different background. And so the communication ends up being really, really crucial and critical. And one of the things that I've definitely seen is that teams grow stronger over time. And if you believe that teams grow stronger over time, you, you have to focus on stability. And in the game industry, stability is not super normal. Mm. What's more normal is every three years, maybe you lay off 30% of your staff because, 
oops, we overinvested in something, we made a wrong decision, or we don't quite have the funds we thought, we better let some people go. And when you do that, it's it's terrible. Like it, it not only is just crippling to the morale of the people who are there at the moment, but from in the future, everyone is going to be like, oh my God, something went slightly wrong. Is my job on the line next? You know, and, they, and there's all that. But then further, anytime you knock somebody out the door, because if you're laying people off, you're not letting go of dead weight. If you're, if you're a good manager at all, you've already gotten rid of the dead weight. Uh, yeah, you're getting rid of people who are really valuable. And the problem is the people who stay behind, they built up an expertise in working with those people you just let go. And now that is all wasted. And now they have to like build up new expertise in working with other people. So for that reason, we've always been very optimized uh, toward stability because that's part of just what makes teams get stronger over time. So that's been something very important yeah. for us. You know, I'd be interested. A lot of people feel like there are definite phases of business, you know, regardless. I'm just thinking about different folks in the, you know, that Greystoke helps growing their businesses, right? We've got yeah. folks, we got folks in finance, we've got folks in consumer goods, we've got advertising agencies, you know, all, all sorts of different backgrounds. In your mind, let's take it from, you can either look, you, you, you decide, we could either do it from a, a revenue standpoint or from a headcount standpoint. Where do you feel like some of the natural breaks are? You know, is it at 10 staff? Is it at 30 staff? Like where, oh, where does it yeah. start to become a different kind of company? Or is it at oh, 10 million in revenue? You know, it's a hundred, no, gra- yeah. 300 grand and then 3 million. No, I, and then where, where do you feel like point, natural breaks are? From my point of view, it has, it has very little to do with revenue and everything to do with the number of, of people. Okay. Because the reason it's, it has to do with the number of people is because your organ, you know, the, the whole idea of an organization, an organization is there to facilitate communication between the individuals in the organization. That's what it's, that's what it is. That's what it's for. You know, that's what organization is. And so the thing to understand is the nature of that communication. And there are a lot of things that are driven mathematically by that. So like a real, a real simple one, you know, people often, you'll often hear people who in a startup, they'll say, well, when there were just seven or eight of us, everything was so easy. And now we're up to 30, 40 people and it's, everything's really hard and complicated. We've got to have all these meetings. It kind of sucks. And they talk about it like someone's dumb and someone's done something wrong. But no, what's, what's, it's a simple matter of when you have seven or eight people, you can all talk to each other all the time. It's physically possible. <laughs> but once, when you have 30 people, you can't. You can't be talking to 29 other people all the time. And when you, when you get past 20 people, what you're going to see starts to happen. It's a, it's a real simple mathematical thing. When you have less than 20 people, over the course of a given week, you will have exchanged words with just about everybody in the company at least once a week, right? When you get over 20 people, there's going to be a few people. You just don't. You go oh, at least a week and you didn't say one word to them because you just didn't bump into them. And if they had something really important that they needed to tell you, but it wasn't so important, they were going to send an email. It was just kind of like a thing that they wanted to ask you and they thought you should know, but weren't, you know, it's that information's just not going to get there. So one of the, so one of the big, like, like if I have to draw them out, like when you get past 10, some stuff starts to happen, but 20 is a really big deal. You've got to really start organizing yourself and having really strong meeting structure by the time you have 20 people. When you get up around 40 people, you just need to start to have layers of management because otherwise, because uh, it, it's a coaching thing. You've got to have ways that people are going to get coached. 
and, and you're going to have uh, certain decisions that, that need to be made by a management group. And so you start and, to get into And what's into your feelings on place. how many direct reports any one leader should have? I would say it should be less than 10. I hear a lot of people throw around, oh, it sh- you know, shouldn't be more than five. I think there are cases where it can be, it can be 10. I guess it all depends on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. One of the, the way we do it is if you... If you are trying to do active work in the company, you cannot have more than five direct reports. If you are just 100% all about managing and coaching, you can have up to 10 okay. is, the way we, is the way we do it. But the most important thing is that you think about it and have some policy that makes sense for you. <laughs> it's, if you don't think about it, that's when you get in trouble. Yeah. And then the big one that we're coming up on is, is 150. You know, because that's, you know, I don't know, Dunbar's number, 143, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Yep. Right? Because that, that's totally what, a human thing. Who was Dunbar? Because that was something about tribes and who you can have personal relationships with, right? Uh, my, again, I'm not, a, I'm no expert, but my understanding was that this was, uh, this was research all about the nature of primates mm. and that every primate species has a number that is the maximum number that they can have and in then otherwise they split in two or something yeah otherwise they'll otherwise they'll split into if if, you, if they have that in their sort of uh, tribal organization that they, they they can't have more than that and the larger the primate brain the the more people you can have and the human one I think is I think it's 143 somewhere around there it's in the a little under 150 and you can see this in everything you can see it in organizations all over the place and the way that they the way the communication happens and and we see it happening with us like we we love our office space it's a super comfortable office space and one you guys of the are things in pittsburgh, I, we're, yep, there, we're in pittsburgh. Okay. yep and one of the things i realized about it one day is like oh yeah this building holds about 150 people like it, it can't really <laughs> hold more than that I'm like, oh yeah, of course. No wonder it seems like really, really comfortable. Because if if it got much bigger, it would it would start to seem different. And we're gonna be up against that. But yeah, they, these are everything is gonna is about networks of communication, and and facilitating those networks both for you know literal communication and also emotional communication. Yeah, you know something I, I love that. So. Kind of maybe 10, for sure 20, again at 40, and then you feel like the next big one's 150-ish? Is that- I, I would say, I, I would, you know, it's, it's, I never really thought of it as a doubling thing, but I think it kind of is. There is something that happens around around 80. That, that's when you really, you can kind of, you, you really need the layers of management and layers of coaching at that, at that point when, when you get up to 80. I, I have my own guesses why, but why is it to you? Yeah, why exactly does that start to happen? I don't even know if I have a good answer for that. What do you think? Mm, I think that, you know, when you're young and scrappy, you, it attracts a certain personality type, right? It mm-hmm. it attracts such like a fierce, like, you know, hunter killer, I'll go out and take a stupid risk of being an entrepreneur, <laughs> right? Like you you uh-huh. really can't know much about statistics if you're going to be an entrepreneur. This is my my thought of myself. My 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 track record is like 13 and 2 for businesses, yeah. right? A couple made yeah, the, a ton of money. The other ones are total disasters, right? Yeah, the the old, the old saying, we we were too dumb to know what we were doing yeah, was impossible. Right? That was how we succeeded. Yeah, yeah. right. So so you get like this fierce personality who like, honestly, they, they probably are like kind of that, like 
elite athlete of being able to land the client and enough charisma and attracting and this and, and too dumb to know they can't do it. What, right. And then there's the folks who like to tag team those people and can work well with them and can handle the chaos. And they're the ones who make sure the invoices actually got sent. Right. Mm-hmm. But my guess is like, once you start getting big enough, I think about this because again, we've got these clients with 10,000 staff and clients with 10 staff. Right. And yeah. when they start getting big enough, if it's, it's almost like they start attracting a different kind of employee, right? They, they're not, they're not like so bifurcated in this, like, you know, fearless run into the dark guy. Plus like the adult supervision who keeps everything from blowing up. You get, yeah. you get more folks who are looking for a job for a career kind of a thing. Right. Uh-huh. And, and they're in my experience looking for a lot more guidance. Like the other people who are like building the airplane yeah. in flight, there was no expectation somebody was going to teach me how to get to the next level. We're inventing the next level, right? Right. Yeah. And what I, well, the way I always break that down is this, this is the difference between leading and following. I, I think most people don't comprehend what leadership is and what followership is. The way I always think of it is it's all about chaos mm. because chaos is what will destroy your organization, Right. That's what the whole job of leaders is, is to keep chaos at bay. Chaos is going gonna, is gonna to come up within the organization, and chaos is going to attack from outside the organization, and it's going to try and rip everything apart. And what leaders do is they confront the chaos, they deal with the chaos, and they manage the chaos. So and put another way, leaders are people who excel in chaotic situations, whereas followers, what followers do is they excel in orderly situations. And that some people will say, oh, that's, you know, it's like, oh, they're not, they're just doing what they're told. Well, no, that's not what it means. Like exceeding is like excelling in an orderly situation is all about optimizing best practices and principles. It's, it's all about making sure everything happens, making sure it it all really does work like it's supposed to work. And there's, there is, it, it, it is a meaningful thing unto itself. And so the larger an organization gets and the more orderly it is, the more people you're going to need who, who succeed in an, in an orderly situation. Because one of the things that's scary about people who thrive in chaotic situations, when it gets too orderly, they start creating chaos <laughs> because they're yeah. not comfortable. Hence the, right? reason, hence the reason my brother and business partner of 15 years is always pawning me off on our my former mentor and our other partner named John, because John can keep me away. Like I'm the guy who's supposed to come up with the great ideas or find this billionaire. Who's going to, you know, donate to our charity or invest in this or whatever. Right. And then everybody wants to kick me out of the kitchen because I get bored and I'm like, well, what if we change this? They're like, shut up. We haven't finished yet. You know, well, maybe, you know, similar about growth, but shifting gears. When you think about what needs to happen to bring in the clients or, you know, the marketing, the sales, the being able to pay for all these people. Uh-huh. In your mind, where does that change from, you know, it's the, you know, the original entrepreneur either has the connections or does all the sales to then we start to have, we need to have a system and then we need to start having a better system. Or what what are your thoughts on as the, as the organization grows, the professionalization of, you know, getting more money in the door? Well, I mean... I mean, I think it's really different for different organizations. I mean, when you start to have stuff that works, you know, you want that, you want the things that work to be systematized as much as possible so that you can kind of 
rely on them and that they can stay there. But then you have the question of like, okay, well, we've got that. What do we want? You know, what else do we want? Yeah. And, like what, what's an example? Yeah. What's where, where, where was a learning point for you guys? What did it look like for you? I mean, I can come up with some real, like it's, it's, it's lots of little things. Like, so I'll, I'll give a real simple one that just has to do with just an organizational point. The question of taking notes in meetings. It used to be, we had no real system for taking notes in meetings. You know, when I, when, when we were small and I was in most of the meetings, I had like a system I would use for kind of keeping notes and keeping track of things, but it wasn't, it was just kind of a thing and it wasn't super organized and I never thought about it too hard. But then as we got a little bigger, you know, we started realizing that, wow, like something, some, some information is getting lost and wait a minute, is there an art to the business of taking notes in meetings? And if so, can that art be described? And why do you really want to take notes in meetings anyway? And as we explored this, we started realizing things like, you know, um, everyone complains about meetings. Oh, I don't want to be in all these meetings. Well, okay, well, why are you there? Well, I feel like I have to be there. I'm going to miss something important. Oh, so in other words, if someone was there taking excellent notes and you could rely on that every single time, maybe you'd skip a few of these meetings knowing you could skim the notes later and mm. ask questions. And it was like, oh my God, this business of taking notes in meetings actually can help people <laughs> out a great deal. So what is the best way to do it? And so we started figuring those things out, coming up with ways of like, okay, here's how it's done and then teaching it. Well, and then doing two things. First of all, having an organized system so that there always is somebody taking notes in every meeting. And then secondly, those people know the right system of taking notes. And then thirdly, they know what to do with the notes afterwards so that everybody kind of sees them and gets exposed to them. That's the sort of thing that's like, you know, helpful, advanced organization that can really, you know, strengthen you over time. You, you know, you, you do a thousand things like that and pretty soon you're like, oh, actually, yeah, we have, we, we, we have something, we have a meaningful basis to, to build on. Yeah. Well, you think about all the success that you've had. What do you think you've done differently than, say, the game shops that, you know, are still 10 times smaller than you? Well, so it's, it's actually, it's not so much the ones that haven't grown. I mean, what I've watched happen in the envelope of our 18-year existence is I've watched studios come into being, arc through some level of something, and then crash and burn and, and, and be gone, right? I, I've, I've seen that happen to a lot of studios within our, our envelope. And we, you know, we've, we've been a bit different that way. We have, we've never had layoffs. We've, we've never missed a payroll. We've had sort of slow and steady growth over the years and it's and that's that's been great to see the things that i think have been a little different for us is you know we very common the tech industry is is the business of intense focus we're going to pick this one thing we're going to we're going to put all our chips on number 29 and we're going to spin that wheel and it, if it works it works and we're all going to do great and if it doesn't well the whole ship crashes and we'll all move on and go do something else and we've never done that we have never gambled the company on an idea instead we tend to like hey let's say about money and then let's let's gamble that money on an idea house money huh uh, yeah that's 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 pretty much it i i mean to to be honest i don't know if we've even ever gambled anybody's job on an idea it's we when we go in and do something we say well even if this makes zero dollars we'll all still have jobs and everybody will go back to work and so we've been we've been a, a bit conservative but, that way. But you know what's interesting? Mm -hmm. If everybody knows if everybody knows they're still going to have a job even if this doesn't work, mm -hmm. doesn't it give you like a little bit of guts to be non-conservative with those house bets though? 
I know like, that's and can you like the swing for the fences when this you're not the, worried about the mortgage? That's exactly right. This is the thing that people don't normally understand. If if like oh my god, if our our all our jobs rely on this, we better everybody overthinks and everybody kind of like oh my god, it's the end of the world if this doesn't happen. Because yeah, it might be the end of the world. You know, you might be you might you might be out of a job. And and when it's like yeah, you know, it's. We all hope this works, but if it doesn't, that's okay. Let's just make it awesome. You're absolutely right. It does. It ends up being very freeing because it makes it more of a game. It makes it more like, well, let's just let's just try some stuff and and see what happens. We let's try some crazy. Like we just had a game we put out. We put we didn't even charge money for it because we looked at it and we're like, we like this game, but it's it's a little short and we don't know how to price it so that people will embrace it because that's one of the risks in reviews. People say, oh, it's a good game, but it's too short. So I'm only giving it two out of five stars. We're like, you know what? No, we'll make it free. And then we don't have to worry about any of that. And if people really like it, there'll be a sequel or something. And it's okay. We can afford to do that. It's And, and we'll see what well, happens. To me, this really goes back to what you're saying about the value of building a tight team that sticks together for a long time, right? Yeah. I look at my two partners. We've been doing stuff together for like my one partner. It's 18 years. The other guy's my brother. And the fourth partner we're bringing on is the woman who we hired to start our charity for us like 10, 11 years ago that I had my first job with 18 years ago. You know what I mean? And this time around, it feels a lot different than some of our catastrophes we've been a part of. Right. And I just think about like, I don't know. Again, we've got a bunch of, clients in the special operations community and then our charity child rescue we've got a number of those guys that volunteer for us and help with like the undercover rescue missions with law enforcement stuff like that right mm-hmm. and those guys push really hard but they do like that becomes a lifestyle and they stay in that for years right and you know on the movies we hear them call each other brother stuff like that but they're like literally closer than family members a lot of times because mm-hmm. of the level of stuff they go through together but also yeah. the years of going through it together over time. So I can see this idea of like, what a competitive advantage when you guys have the mindset, we are trying to keep the dream team together here. And financially you're doing that as well. You're, you're intentionally making decisions that you don't have to exit somebody from the team who you don't want to exit because the finances are forcing you to. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I remember one of the, one of the things Walt Disney used to say that we've adopted as a, as a principle on our own, you know, he, he used to say, we don't make movies to make money. We make money to make movies because, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the, you know, the, the mission statement at, at Shell Games is, you know, we make experiences we're proud of with people we like in order to make the world a better place. That's it's, it's, just, it's as simple as that. And we, we, you know, it, it, it seems sort of backwards, I guess, but just focusing on making great things because making great things with great people is super fun. That, that's been a lot of the secret for our success, I think. You know, what's funny is there's, it's so trendy these days for entrepreneurs to say we make the world a better place. And yeah, like, I, I don't know, dude, like you make a payment app really like that like what right but then when i hear about what you guys have done for saving lives with hospitals and firefighters and stuff i'm like okay those guys are really that that counts for me they get the check mark for me of making the world better yeah Um, no it's 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 funny because yeah there are because we sort of look at both sides of that on one level yeah we make we make games that are designed to prevent hiv we're working on one now that's 
you know, designed to help dementia patients, you know, all, all these, these sorts of things. But at the same time, we're making an entertainment product. And like, that's the idea of entertainment product is that too should be making the world a better place. Otherwise, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Well, and I, and I agree with you because we're trying to turn Greystoke Media into a legit media company, like a full on media company. And, you know, I fully embrace the idea that I'm in the world of infotainment on that side of things, right? Mm -hmm. Try to be helpful in an entertaining way. You know, maybe to wrap up here, well, just again for a plug, will you tell people where to get the book, where to connect with you? Can we cover that again? Yeah, sure. The best way to find information about me is just go to jessieshell.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-S-C-H-E-L-L.com. And that's got links to stuff about the art of game design, things about shell games, and also uh, the program I teach at at Carnegie Mellon at the Entertainment Technology Center there. Yeah. Well, maybe to wrap up here, we'll ask one of the questions I've really enjoyed lately. You know, with all the success you've had and the TED Talks and all this stuff, can you, you know, what's a question you don't get asked as much as you'd like? What, what's a soapbox thing? What's, if you could talk about anything, what do you want to close with here? Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one there. Yeah. What people don't talk about enough. I mean, I guess one of the things I guess, you know, in terms of, in terms of a soapbox for me is it really is the business of thinking about the way that we engage with digital media on a day-to-day basis. People have just become so accepting of, well, you know, I guess we just have to live with it. It just has to be the way it is. You know, the, the, you know, the Facebook ads have to be the way they are. That's just part of our lives now. And I, I really want to, I just try, really try and encourage people to, particularly when you're engaging with media, with, with your family, to kind of stop and think about, is this really right and healthy? Is this really the best thing? Is the fact that, you know, my, my teenage daughter spends three hours on Instagram a day? Is it, what is she doing in there? Is it, is it good and healthy? Is Fortnite actually good for you? Are the idea of games that are kind of mass murder simulators actually healthy? And getting people to kind of go in and look at these things, examine the movies you're watching, the shows you're watching, the social media you engage with, the games you play, and think about them. That's that, that, that. If I have a soapbox, it's it's probably that uh, more than anything else because not everybody making this stuff is looking out for your best interest. Yeah, I love it. Well, listen, any recommendations for people like me who are super interested in this transformational game stuff or figuring out how we can do it in our own companies? Any other books you recommend or any other maybe point us in the right direction? Oh, yeah. Well, certainly let me point you to a book called uh, The Transformational Framework by Sabrina Sulba, C-U-L-Y-B-A. The Transformational Framework uh, Framework is a free download. Sabrina worked at Shell Games for several years, and she tried to encapsulate a lot of our process into this book. So that's a, it's a free download, or you can uh, buy physical copies of it. And it, it really, it's a great book because it's designed for people who, they're like, they, you have an area like, you know, like the position you're in. Hey, I really want people to kind of know about these Warren Buffett principles. How do I make a game out of that? And it's also designed for people who are like, hey, I make entertainment games, but I don't really understand much about the educational transformational part of it. This book is a really nice way to kind of bridge the gap between both of those. It's lots of great, thoughtful diagrams and easy ways to think about it. So that's a great, a great book to check out. I love it. Well, 
thanks for making so much time for us here. This has been great. Sure thing. Uh, yeah. And anybody who's, you know, if anybody needs to chat about anything, you know, drop by jessyshell.com and you can contact me. I'd be happy to help out. That's great. Bye everybody.